0: Okay, we have a few announcements tonight. First of all, early voting for the Texas primary election started today. And so this week and next week until March through March 1st, which is Friday of next week, there will be early voting. So pay attention to that and get your conservative voting guides, all of that information. That's number one. Number two, the Chamber Conference is coming on like a freight train, March 4th through 6th, which starts two weeks from yesterday. And we still need volunteers to, uh, to work in various, various areas. And so you can contact Cheryl or Barb Apple or Connie Balthrop and uh, get in touch with them, uh, setting up the various uh, schedules. We need lots and lots of cookies as always. And then third is one of our nursery workers is going to be um, taking leave starting the first Sunday in April. And so she's not going to be able to help out. And so we need at least two volunteers. We've been asking for one. We need at least one to replace her and one more. And if we had four volunteers, then that would be once, once a month which is not a difficult thing to do. It's the one I'm asking for a lifetime commitment. But um, this, is, this is an important thing. We've got a number of young families here, and they're doing things, but they, they need to be in Bible class on Sunday. So uh, if you can help out there, that would be tremendous. I think that's about it. Well, we had a great week last week. And we started with Jewish Evangelism Tuesday night, which we're going to continue tonight. I don't know that I'll finish it, but I hope I will. Uh, Second, and then Wednesday night, we had Olivier Melnick here, and he did a fabulous job talking about anti-Semitism. And I'll remind you that we're going to get another look and a different look at anti-Semitism during the Chafer Conference in the afternoon session on Monday morning. Monday afternoon, rather, the first day of the conference, and the speaker is Paula Jaffe. Paula retired from um, working with, um, she was the at Mid-Atlantic Area Director for uh, Stand With Us, and we've got some of Stand With Us literature out there. They're tremendous at educating people. I've never heard a speaker, including her, uh, with, with Stand With Us that wasn't just beyond excellent. Their knowledge of their material, their content, uh, I've never heard elsewhere. And when when I heard her speak at the session in, uh, when we were up in New Jersey back in August, there were f- four or five of us who come to the Chafer Conference at that encounter event. And I polled the other guys. I said, I think she should be giving this information to the pastors. And they all agreed 100%. So everybody needs to hear this. So she's going to be a highlight. I think this is going to be a fabulous conference, and it comes at an appropriate time for Israel and all that is going on in the Middle East. This is not going to end soon. I was at a meeting today with Sar more about that later, but they were saying that they expect this to perhaps go into the early months of of uh, 2025. So this is not going to end anytime soon. And so I'll be showing you a short video on that in the middle of the lesson, and you'll see how absolutely devastated Israel was, and you'll also see how devastated Gaza has become. When you hear people say, well, we ought to let the people go back home. There are no homes left in the northern part of Gaza for them to return. They're gone. So... That's just part of all the different complexities of issues that are going on. So how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers... And the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I appreciate your continued prayers for Dan Ingram. I have been meaning to give the congregation an update. Uh, Dan has been moved by his family into, uh, a—I w- I will call it, a senior living facility. He is in an independent two-bedroom apartment. And uh, they just moved him last week out of his four-story Townhouse, so that he'll be easier for him to get around and to do things. He's going through still a lot of experimental treatments, and yet he's had a couple of small strokes right around Christmas to New Year's, and so he has that that dropped him down a little bit, a little more uh, confusion, a little more difficulty coming up with the right words to say, things of that nature. And I can't imagine how difficult that is for someone who has the gift of pastor-teacher. And yet his congregation is learning a lot about caregiving and being gracious and kind and taking care of him. And it's a tremendous example uh, to everybody of their their graciousness. So just continue to pray for Dan and pray for his family as uh, they go through this. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Our Father, we know that whatever we face in life, whatever challenges there, there may be, no matter how personal or whether they're financial or whether they're global, your grace is sufficient for everything. It is enough. You have provided everything we need. You've given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have made us a temple of the Holy Spirit for His indwelling and for the base for filling us with Your Word. And, Father, as we look at all the things that are going on in this election year and all of the different headlines, it's so easy to be distracted. But, Father, help us to set these things aside, to focus upon You and the mission You have given us and not to be distracted by the by the fights and the disagreements and all of the chaos that occurs in the devil's world. Because we have a mission, and that is to be a witness to what you have provided for us, a witness to your grace, a witness to salvation, a witness for the Christian life. We witness with our lives because we are uh, to be light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and we we witness with our lips, and we tell people... We are to explain the gospel and give us openings, give us opportunities, give us the words that we need in order to tell people the wonderful good news that we have forgiveness and we have everlasting life available to us simply by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to be in part two to the Jew first. Last week I started, we looked at Romans 116 and looking at uh, the issues in Jewish evangelism. Now that may seem kind of odd to some people that we seem to be targeting a particular group, but we've heard others in the past talk about Muslim evangelism, and that's important. And there are those that talk about evangelism to Mormons. Our evangelism to the Jehovah's Witnesses because these are particular groups of people that are not necessarily coming uh, into your life with a, a at a level of neutrality or even a genu, gen, uh, general openness or sympathy with Christianity, and so there there has to be time, and it's important when we get involved with people who are not believers that we don't adopt a mentality where they can, they they just become a target that this is an opportunity for us to, to get another notch in our gospel gun, but an opportunity to just become friends with somebody, whether they believe in Christ or not, and to be able to uh, talk to them about the Lord. And that doesn't necessarily come in a hurry. Sometimes it takes a while and we have to be in prayer. So we're talking about those issues tonight. So when I looked at this last time, we looked at Romans one sixteen, that emphasizes the fact that it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what that means to the Jew first, that the Greek word that is used there, an adverb, proton, indicates a priority. We talked a little bit about priorities do not necessarily mean you always do that as a priority first. There are days in our schedules every week when the things we know that should be first come last just because of the exigencies of the day, the necessities of the day. And so we are to uh, recognize this is a priority, In our lives, and I think that's at the bottom line. What we see when we talk about Romans one sixteen, I thought I had the verse here, but I guess I didn't put it in. Um, Is that it's focusing on a situation that occurred historically, in that, in that, in the early early church, there was a priority, a recognition of the importance of evangelism to the Jewish community. But by the end of the second century, you started to see some of the seeds of anti-Semitism. It wasn't theological anti-Semitism yet, not until after 200. But you do see a few things where some of the writers in the early church would make statements where they were blaming the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ. Little things like that, that the, Satan really used to create a division between the Gentile church and the, and the Jewish church, the Messianic Jews, as they're called today. And up until about 200, from the studies that I have made and read, there's an estimate you can't be sure. You don't have anybody going out and taking polls. Gallup wasn't born yet. And so you, you can just uh, uh, make some educated uh, assumptions that if you see how many Jewish people are saved in Acts, and you extrapolate this because they had children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who would be brought up as believers in Yeshua as the Messiah, so that by the time you get to the end of the second century, it was thought that at least half of the uh, Christians in the Roman Empire were ethnic Jews. But that wasn't true 50 years later because of this division, uh, this division that that came in. And so what happens after this is that there is a um, uh, there 's a separation, and then the Jewish people are forgotten they don 't need the gospel. Look at what they did to jesus and This happened uh, throughout the history of Christianity. So, as we look at Romans one sixteen it raises the question of what is the place of Israel in the outreach of the church? And I think that when we look at this, we looked, talked about it last time, that it relates back to the Abrahamic covenant, that those who bless Israel should be blessed. We also looked at the fact that this was Paul's procedure. And it wasn't just a matter of what, of his personal preference, or this was what he did historically, because you have passages where he talks about, uh, in Acts, where he talks about... Um, in Acts fourteen one, I found my page. In Acts fourteen one, he says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue and they spoke with a great multitude there. And then as you, oh, I skipped ahead. Acts 13.46, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold as they're speaking to to, at, to the Jewish multitudes. And they said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Pro Protas, same word, same adverb. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that they were going to the Gentiles absolutely. It was just in, uh, there in, in uh, I think they were uh, in Derby or one of the other, t- uh, oh, in Antioch of, of uh, Pisidia. And so when they went to the next place, which was Iconium, that's Acts fourteen one, they went to the synagogue again. So the, that was his procedure all the way through. And so there's debate as to is this indicating just something they did historically or is this indicating something that should be normative? And I think it's indicating something that should be normative, but it's when we look at what uh, Paul is saying here, he 's ad- not addressing every individual he 's not saying like every one of you should make Jewish evangelism your priority he 's talking to the body of christ he's talking to local churches and we have to understand this would be in contrast to what happened historically where there was not only was there no little or no Witnessing to the Jewish community, but instead they were blamed for the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, when there was an earthquake, it was the Jews who were blamed for the earthquake. If, uh, uh, if they, When the Black Plague came along, they were blamed for that. When any type of negative thing happened, it was the Jews' fault. And so instead of being a witness to the Jews of the grace of God, the church became the instrument of anti-Semitism and hatred of God's chosen people. And for centuries, the institutional church, and even after the Protestant Reformation, with with some more exceptions, there was little attention paid to the spiritual condition of Jewish people. And yet, what Paul is saying here is that this should have been a priority in the life and history of of, of Christianity. So that was his his procedure. So this is the focal point of Romans one sixteen. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it that is the gospel is the power of God, and we have to take that whole phrase as what it is. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Uh, to the Jew as a priority, or essentially to the Jew, or especially to the Jew. That's how I translated it last week. Especially to the Jew and also uh, to the Gentile. And that that went back to understanding the basic uh, Abrahamic covenant. So it sets up this priority for the universal church or for local churches, but not necessarily every believer. And what I mean by that is if you're getting the gospel and getting saved in Zambia... Is it your job to make sure that you're going to witness to every Jew that you can find? Well, you may have a trip in mind if you have to do that. There aren't too many around, so that doesn't make sense. So, so some people take it to that extreme, and I don't think that's right at all. I, I think that's distorting what is being said here. So, but it's a it's a pri- priority that has been ignored in the history uh, of Christianity. So third, in our lives, we're to be a witness. Now, this applies to all of us as believers. We are to be a witness. That is Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20. That's called the Great Commission. That is our mission. We are to be a witness. When we are going, you are to um, teach, baptize, and to teach. We'll look at that a little later on. But that applies to everyone. We are to be a witness. Now, we witness in two ways. We witness with our lives. Now, a lot of people witness with their lives and they think, well, that's the best I can do because I'm not very smart. Well, if you're not very smart, it's because you've chosen not to be very smart. It's our responsibility that we are to get, tell people about the gospel, not just witness with our lives. Witness with our lives, especially in the Jewish community, is a, is a witness that gains respect. And we'll go through some of the problems that, that anyone in the Jewish community has. But we're to, be a, we're to establish our friendship, our love, our care for Jewish people, for Islamic people, for Mexican people, for, because they're human beings created in the image and likeness of God. But the Bible talks about that it, it, there is this significance given to the Jewish people because of their relationship to Abraham. And so that's, that's important, and we have to understand some things about that. So it's important with our life because we may establish our, uh, uh, our respect. Because Jews have been treated so poorly by Christians, that's a big hindrance uh, for lots of for lots of Jewish people. You know, you're, and a lot of people, I read one Jewish writer who was talking about Jews and Christians and the importance of the alliance of Jews and Christians for Israel. But he says uh, an unfortunate reality is a lot of Jews believe that they have a sign on their back that says, I'm Jewish, tell me about Jesus. And so people just, as soon as they find out they're Jewish, they just want to jump right into the gospel, rather than just getting to know somebody. And we should get to know we should get to know people, and and then eventually we get an opportunity to witness with our the lips. Another way to talk about this is there's a lot of people who will spend a lot of time building bridges with people, with unbelievers, not just Jews, but just you're building bridges, and you think. I'm going to witness with my life. And you never drive over the bridge. And you have to drive over the bridge to be able to explain the gospel to people. It doesn't matter who they are, what their ethnicity is. And a lot of people are just afraid to do that. And we have to realize that it's not up to us. We don't have to be able to answer every question. People are going to ask us questions and say things that never occurred to us. And they're going to look at things that we think is a slam dunk explanation and they're going to have some way to uh, to minimize it and but it's up to the Holy Spirit to drive the point home not up to us it's not up to us to win the argument it's up to the Holy Spirit to make it clear and so our job is just to just to make it clear and develop that uh, develop that friendship so our job is to tell unbelievers specifically about the good news that Jesus the Messiah died for our sins, and by simply believing in him and his death on the cross, we have everlasting life. Now, there are a lot of different ways to do this. There's, I think there's as many different ways to... Oh, that's not on. Okay. I have been tech-challenged all day. Is that even coming on yet? No. Nope. Here we go. Printer problems at home, printer problems here. So uh, there's as many ways to present the gospel as there are people in conversations. And you have to become comfortable with your material so that you can just easily ask questions. And if you notice when you read through the gospels, Jesus approaches people by asking questions. He doesn't tell them. He asks questions to get them to think about the answer, to engage with the issue. He doesn't just shoot them with a gospel gun. And so that's very, very important. And there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Now, one way that people use it, and I've seen a couple of people, I know there are more, but I've seen a couple of people up close who are very effective at using a tract to evangelize people. Many of you remember Gene Brown. Gene's now with the Lord, and we had some great evangelism uh, seminars with Jean. Gene, uh, Gene was—I uh, just miss Gene all the time. But he, he had a little track that was kind of a test, and you'd had all these questions: What do I need to do to go to heaven? And you know, you'd have these options: Check which one I need to do—go to church, be good—all these different options. And then you'd open it up to find out what the answers were, and then there were some verses. And I've watched Gene do that maybe four or five times, and it's just wonderful to watch. He was so good at it. But one thing he told me is that if he was someplace where he was talking to people and he was handing out these little tests to people, if it was a white person, they walked widely around him. But if they were Hispanic, they would come right up and engage with him. Or or if they were black, they would engage with him. Now, why why is that? Because your average white, middle-class, educated American has been given all kinds of lies in his higher education to debunk the truthfulness of Scripture. And so he comes to that tract with an idea, oh, this is just some, you know, some religious guy giving me a, something and I'm not going to buy into it, I'm too smart for it. But if you're coming from uh, a, in a black community where there's a reverence for God and the church and Christianity... And you have the same thing in someone coming from a Hispanic background because there's still a cultural acceptance of Christianity and there's a sympathy towards it. It's not, they're not antagonistic to Christianity. Then they're going to, you're going to talk to them and they're going to talk with you and it's going to be fine. But that's not going to work with everybody. So you can't just have sort of a one way that always works, works with everybody. So there's a lot of different ways that you can engage with people and giving them the gospel. One of the things that we should note is that our goal primarily is to be able to uh, help people understand the truth. And we have to realize that, especially if you're dealing with older people beyond their 20s or 30s, they're not asking those questions that you and I asked when we were in our teenage years. Is there a God... They've answered it. They've said there is no God. We said, we looked around, we said, yeah, there's a God. They're at a stage where they've got 10 or 15, 20 years or more where they're convinced there's no God, there's no salvation, science rules, that's, that's it. And, <clears throat> and that's hardened in their thinking. But if they're younger, they're, they're still thinking of wrestling with some of these big, big life questions. So it's good just to uh, build friendships, just to develop commonalities with, with people. And that's not going to work with everybody. And I want to give you a, a, just an idea of what happened in, in, uh, in our situation. When we were up in Connecticut, and I think we did know one or two Jewish people up there. And uh, but we were really interested in finding out more about Israel. We weren't thinking in terms of of evangelism or anything like that, although that's never far from from my mind. But we wanted to find out how can we find out more? We want to know about Iran, what's going on there, what What is all this about? And so, as Pam was reading a lot of material related to this, she kept running across references to APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And one day she said, I think maybe we ought to join this organization just to get their literature and get more informed about what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on with Israel. And that, I thought, well, that's a great idea. So we joined APAC, and we were getting emails and different literature, not a whole lot, if I recall, but it was, it was helpful, and it would point us to certain websites and to getting answers. And then we moved back to Houston, and it turned out that that um, we had met uh, some folks who were really close Jewish friends, and they were also members of APAC and so one thing led to another, and I started getting more and more involved in going to APAC things and learning a lot about Israel and meeting a lot of others who were involved and they were so grateful to have a Christian pastor who was involved in pro Israel things who loved Israel that that as time went by um, they they would feel very comfortable with asking me questions and that 's sort of been my everybody everybody in the Jewish community knows Robbie Dean is a strong advocate for Israel he loves the Jewish people he loves Israel. And I'm, do not have the reputation that I'm there to convert them. But they will ask me questions. They'll talk to me. I've had some wonderful conversations with people who are, who are open. And we have to, that's the, that's one way of going about it. Now there are a lot of people in the pro, Christians in the pro Israel a community who never crossed the bridge, and they're not ever going to cross the bridge. They have made a decision ahead of time. They're not going to go there. And some organizations that operate in Israel have actually signed uh, contracts with the Israeli government that they will not engage in witnessing. And I think that's wrong. I think that is not correct biblically. But we should be open to be able to explain the gospel and um uh, I don't know how far that has gone, but I know that there are going to be some people here uh, during the conference that are pretty close. And they have people ar- surrounding them who are within our group. Let's just say our, broad, our very narrow, tiny little group of evangelical doctrinal believers They are around these people. And they know, they could probably, some of them I know, can probably give the gospel better than anybody in this room. Because the issue isn't knowledge. The issue isn't convincing them of the right argument. The issue is their decision toward God. And we'll talk about that. The Holy Spirit is the sovereign executor of evangelism. And so we need, in some cases, and it it goes case by case, you have to be flexible. Uh, We need to recognize that they're watching us. I remember one of my good friends who helped start this church and helped rescue me out of Ukraine told me a long time ago, because he knows a lot of these people too, he said, Robbie, they watch you. They watch me. They want to make sure that what we're saying matches what we're doing. And they watch everything that we do. We are that testimony of Christ to them, of Christians. And they just bring to the table lots lots of different issues. So it's important for us to, to recognize that. Some of them may be a little more open. Some may not. So we just keep going back to that question on what's the place of Israel and the outreach of the church, and that is we need to look for those particular, uh, particular op- opportunities. So I'm going to skip ahead in my notes here. So we go back to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 19 and 20, where Jesus says, Go, and it's not a command, the go is not a command, but the make disciples and teaching are participles and a participle often i mean excuse me make disciples is your imperative baptizing and teaching are your participles go is a participle but when you have a command often the participles around it because a participle is adverbial that means it modifies a verb well what's the verb the verb is a command so that means the participles around it pick up that imperatival force from the imperative verb. There's all kinds of debate. You'll hear all kinds of people tell you different things that you ought to be while you were going. Therefore, but I think that it's right that the, it should be interpreted as a as an imperatival participle. That that the disciples were expected to go. We we can. Look at Acts one eight that Jesus said, You wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you are to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So you're to go. And that doesn't mean that you, living in Houston, Texas, are to go, but it is talking about where we are in the realm of our life. This is our marching Orders. We are to be witnesses, verbal witnesses as well as lifestyle witnesses. So you have a lot of problems though when you're talking to Jewish believers. You'd have the same thing if you're talking to if you're if you're talking to somebody who's a Hindu, somebody who's a Buddhist, somebody who is a uh, Muslim, Mormon. They're all going to have the same baggage. They have a. Uh, They've been taught certain things, and they have a certain perception of who you as a Christian are. So in the Jewish community, there's going to be a certain level of hostility. When Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who was saved just before his uh, never-actually-happening bar mitzvah, uh, trusted Yeshua as his Messiah... Family, shortly thereafter, moved to Southern California, and the day he graduated from high school, his father kicked him out of the house. But he had a number of Christian friends back in New Jersey, New York area, that welcomed him uh, with open arms. The hostility from friends, hostility from family, hostility from their uh, community. And a lot of this is due to this cultural suspicion due to the history of anti-Semitism. And one of the big charges that has gone down through the ages is blaming Jesus, I mean, blaming the Jews for the crucifixion of Jesus, that they're Christ killers. This really played from the early Middle Ages. I would say there were people accusing the Jews of being Christ killers as early as Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century. But it doesn't really become broad, broadly based until you get into the second century. Uh, second century. But it ignores passages like John 10:15 and then 17 and 18. Jesus said, "As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep." See, Jesus laid down his life. He doesn't say, "I was murdered for the sheep, I was executed for the sheep." He said, "I'm laying down my life for the sheep." He's the one who was in control. John 10:17, "Therefore, my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again." Jesus is totally in control of when he dies and his resurrection." John 10:18. No one takes it from me. That would include Jews, Romans, everybody else. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So there's this ignorance there, but throughout the Middle Ages and on up, and, it, you know, and we see the, in, this, in the last century, the Holocaust all of the embedded anti-Semitism in Europe that is resurrecting itself again uh, in all of these different countries, it, it's just, just horrific. But the Jews are, are the, the feeling the brunt of all of this hatred. And it comes from Christians. Christian anti-Semitism is the greatest blight on the cross that there is in all, uh, all of history. So we have to understand, and I pointed this out last time, that the majority of Jewish people are not rejecting the gospel, not rejecting Christianity, because they've studied the issues. They haven't taken out their Old Testament, they haven't read through the uh, uh, prophecies of the Messiah, and they haven't gone to the New Testament to see how those were fulfilled. They are rejecting on the basis of what they've been told, on the basis of their culture, and on the basis of of the past. And so they have certain sensitivities that hinder them from even considering the claims of Jesus because there's all this other stuff. I think last week Olivier mentioned the fact that, that when they see us coming, they see us carrying this baggage and the baggage is the Holocaust, the Crusades, the, the blaming the Jews for the Black Plague, uh, kicking all of the Jews out of Spain. All of that is hanging around our neck because as far as they're concerned, that is inherent to Christianity. And so we have to recognize that this is something that, that we overcome. Now, we don't do it on our own. It's done through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. But we must recognize that he uses us in the process of overcoming that. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty-five, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Mystery is a previously unrevealed truth. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. So what's the mystery? Well, that he's going to tell us in the that clause. That blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, so there is a partial blindness in Israel. Now you may know a hundred Jewish people, but you don 't know which ones are part of the partial blindness and which ones aren 't and God calls people to the cross through the through the scriptures, so we have to know how to handle the scriptures. But it's not us. It's not our ability to present the most rational answer possible, and it gives us that opportunity. So we need to be prepared. And there's some different suggestions on what we need to, to do to be prepared, and I think I think some are more important than, than others. But before I get to that, I want to go to one more thing and uh, talk about how do we... You say, well, I don't know any Jews. Well, that's fine. I don't recall that I ever prayed that God would open doors in the Jewish community to me. That, I didn't recognize that as something, something special or distinct. I just prayed that God would give me open doors to, to witness to unbelievers. And what came about in our life was getting involved, as I said earlier, getting involved with APAC, and getting involved with some other organizations. Now several people have said, "Well, what's that hanging around your neck?" Well, I went to a luncheon today and this is from SARL. It is a little uh, you know, metal tag that says SARL volunteer. And I want to play a video for you. So I've got to get out of that and then go to here. drag this over here to this screen, and then we're going to enlarge it, and I hope the volume is up, so we'll see, got to get it back to the beginning. Now one thing I'm going to tell you is that they're going to be speaking in Hebrew. But there's closed caption at the bottom, so that you can understand. There are few people who speak in English, but it's it's an accented English, so it may be a little a little difficult for you to uh, catch some of this. And Eddie, you should have the volume up, and I'm going to start playing it. Well, I'm not hearing anything. Are you hearing anything back there? Are you getting any sound? What? Okay, I think it's got... There we go. It's not muted. Yeah, my, my volume is up all the way okay we're going to back it up to the beginning so we can hear what they say now this first guy that you're going to see is a retired uh, Israeli major general his name is uh, Ronan and I met him today and he retired from the IDF seven months ago and was relaxing on the beach on the Sea of Galilee with his family on October the 6th but not on October the 7th they heard the news very very early and so that's, he, that's who he is. And there's another woman that you'll see that's a, uh, that is a, uh, one of the top people with Sarel in Israel. And her name is Karen. K-E-R-E-N. Okay, so let's try this again, see if we got sound. What? I can't hear you. I have hearing aids. I can't hear anything you're saying. My player is volumes all the way up and it's on. on Over here? Oh, that. Okay. (laughs) I don't play a lot of these. All right, let's start it over. I've been serving the Army for 32 years. I've seen a lot. I thought I saw horrors until October the 7th. The horrors I saw, I never imagined that a human being can do it. The be'om Shabbat, the first day of Shabbat, the of Shabbat, We're the best. The best one. You're going to sleep in the south, and every morning a bus will take you uh, to Katsarin. base uh, in the north, okay? Uh, next to uh, Katsarin, and you will be staying there. And the blessings not be afraid And we are it's actually critical because the food is uh, the power of our soldier. And we are receiving the mission every day from the logistical corp of the IDF. They are telling us what are the needs of the IDF and we are back and ready to the mission sending the people. We are making sure that the combat soldiers and everyone who is in the field has the medicine that they need in order to stay safe and to stay healthy. It took me up until Monday to feel what was right for me to do, which was to come here in feeling that I'm a part of something that can help. When I heard about the war starting, I was overwhelmed, as many people were, and I have done SARL before, and I called them up and said, What can I do now to help? 40 years, there have been over 180,000 unique volunteer visits from over 80 countries. In wartime, we need them more. the front one and these are the back so right here we have our volunteers from all over the world working together with soldiers to make the ceramic vests that go to the soldiers in that field the ceramic vests are saving the life of our soldiers being a part of the idea gives you an instant feeling of being a part of this country the culture You feel the togetherness. I think I am prepared, like many other volunteers, to stay for as long as Israel may need. Sarel is my passion. Israel is my passion. And whatever they ask me to do, whatever they need, I do. We will win. And we will do it together. you think about that? That looks um, so good. Enjoy. Hey, can so I talk to I you for a second I went to luncheon today. The, um, a man, uh, I can't remember his last name, Kevin, had just gone back. I met him two weeks ago, and he had just gone back from Israel, and he, and he made an excellent point. He said, many of us support Israel. We talk about how we support Israel. We can write a check to donate to Friends of the IDF or to SARL or to many, any number of different organizations. We can pray for them, but to go over there and spend a week or two weeks or three weeks where you are spend the whole day working, packing food boxes, packing ceramic plates into uh, vests or packing up medical supplies, for the troops on the front line, uh, gives you a sense that you have really done something to to help them, and so they have these groups that go over there for a week, two weeks, or three weeks, and they range in the volunteers range in age from 20 to 82. Now that's not a mandatory cutoff age on either end, but that's what they've had. They've had about 80,000 volunteers go over there since the 8th, uh, 7th of October. And they started arriving on that that afternoon, people coming from countries all over the world. 30% of the volunteers that are coming are Christians, which is a great testimony. So I've just talked about two things that I know about that is a way that a Christian can just say, you know, I really love Israel. I want to support Israel. and. I'm can. i I'm retired. I can go over there. I just need to find out what to do, but I'd love to go over there and help for a week or two weeks or three weeks, whatever you want to do. That's one way to do it. Or you just want to know more about Israel, so you get involved in, in with something like APAC. But you you do those things because you want to do those things. You're not going, well, I'm going to go be a part of this organization so I can find Jews I can give the gospel to. You're going over there to do something for Israel to learn about this, and as God opens the doors, then you can be an effective witness. The, the main thing is that when we're witnessing in life, where, whoever it is, we're involved with people. And what always should be working in the back of our mind is eventually the Lord wants me or may give me an opportunity to talk to this person about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I need to know what the issues are. I need to know how I can be more prepared. And whether you're talking about somebody who's got a Jewish background or Muslim background or just is a white, educated, atheist American, uh, basically 95% of the information is the same. We just have to learn to, about things with the person. So the first thing is prayer. Colossians 4 3. Paul said, meanwhile, praying for us, also for us, that God would open us a door. We should be praying for that every day, that God would open doors for us to give people the gospel, whoever it may be, that God gives us an open door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Remember, he wrote Colossians from prison in Rome, just like he did Ephesians. So we need to pray above all things. Second, you need to know your material. You need to know the kinds of questions people might ask from whichever background where God may put you in that position. And we need you need to understand the questions and what objections they might be. And you may not know how to answer some of them. And that's fine. You know, I've got a a number of degrees. I've been in a lot of Bible classes, and there are questions that can be phrased differently than I ever thought about. But I know where to find the answers. It's more important that you know where to find the answers than that you know all the answers. Because if you're building a friendship with somebody, it's just not a one-shot opportunity. And you can say that, well, that's Something I can look up. Let me talk about that. Let me think about that. Third thing is you need to be walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is walking in the light. And walking in the light means that we're fulfilling the command in Philippians 2 to be a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Uh, The third point is that we are to walk by... uh, We are to... Uh, recognize that it's the Holy Spirit. We're walking by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is working. He's the sovereign executor of evangelism. In John 16, the last thing Jesus says in John 16 before he prays on the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, The Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts them, not you and not me. We talk to them about the word, and it's the Holy Spirit who works in their heart to make it clear. And then he explains those three of sin because they don't believe in me they've rejected me. So the Holy Spirit convicts them, convinces them of the truth there that they are indeed a sinner. And second, of righteousness, because I go to the Father, because he is righteous, and you see me no more, and of judgment related to the ruler of this world, who is Satan, that he is judged, and he was judged at the cross. So as we prepare for evangelism, we have to be prepared, but we have to recognize that spiritual preparation is walking by the Spirit and depending upon Him. The fourth thing is that, that we need to be sensitive. We need to be sensitive in a lot of different areas. We don't realize that we're being insensitive, and we don't know that some of the words that we use, which we are very comfortable with, have a different connotation when you're talking to somebody in the Jewish community. And we can easily talk about things and not know anything about their background. But it's important to learn those things. I've told this story before. One of the, I learned early on in conversations with my uh, Jewish friends that for many Jews, a major issue is how can a loving God allow six million Jews to die in the Holocaust, to be murdered in the Holocaust? Now, what's the underlying question there? The underlying question is why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why is there evil in the world? and when my dad died and we were I was preparing for the memorial service here about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up and the first thing I conscious thought I had was I'm going to have six of and I hadn't focused on this at all I'm going to have six of my closest unsaved Jewish friends sitting right on that second row and I've got to make the gospel clear in a way that they can understand it And the question for some of them is, why did God allow the Holocaust? So as I laid there in bed, I thought, I have to shape this in a totally different way than I've ever done a memorial service. And so when I talked about my dad, because my dad was born in 1923, and 1929 the depression came he went through some real adversity in his life uh, his, even though he was born in a southern family they were up in Chicago I don't know why finding work during the depression he was wandering around playing in a construction site on a on a office building and fell down an elevator shaft uh, from the seventh floor landed on his head didn't seem to affect him a whole lot but when he was older he had had to lie in a hospital bed for like three or four months on one side of his head. And you could see when he was younger that one ear was just flat up against his, his skull. And then later he was uh, went into the Marine Corps. He was on the first wave at Iwo Jima. That was a lot of fun. Got wounded twice. He came back, married my mother. Uh, four years later, she got pregnant. Seven months later, she got polio and had me, never walked again. They went through some difficult time. When he was in the Depression, he was picking cotton at the side of his mother when he was nine years old up outside, of, outside of Lubbock and Amarillo. So, said, well, you know, this is a good kid. What did he do to deserve this? And then I went to Job. And I walked through what, what's going on with Job, all the undeserved suffering that Job went through, and basically went through the gospel from Job and answered the question of why does God allow evil in the world? And so that's just the kind of thing. These are not simple. They sound like simple questions, but the answers are not necessarily simple for people to, to, uh, to understand. So we have to know their background, know what they're going through, and we have to be able to communicate. Uh, fifth point is always be gracious and kind, not argumentative or pushy. Because other people think that they're right, and we're talking to them about something that will totally change their whole world. To give up some tightly held beliefs that they thought were right and show them that maybe not. And so we need to understand that. We need to understand that there's some vocabulary that we use that we ought not use. For example, and I learned this, I had somebody tell me this a long time ago, it's not always re- received well if you refer to them as Jews. Refer, use the, instead of using the word Jews, refer to Jewish people. I've seen this in print in numerous Books related to this, and I've been told this by Jewish people. Don't 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 use Jews. Talk about Jewish people. And those were Jewish Jews, unsaved Jews, telling me that. Don't use the word Christ. Christ is associated with, with the claim that they were Christ killers. They don't understand what Christ means. They don't understand what you do, that the Greek word Christos is where we get the word Christ, and that that's a translation of Messiah. So just use the word Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. A- another word is is that they may not have a world-warm sensitivities about Jesus. So, I have seen this more and more in the last 40 years, where when I'm reading uh, Jewish writers, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has four volumes on Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, that they use Yeshua and they use Messiah together. Another word that you and I should never use is convert, because this brings to mind the forced conversions on the Jews all through the Middle Ages. And so uh, the, the biblical word is to turn. Uh, and they talk about that. Uh, um, uh, Teshuva is the Hebrew word. Shuv is the verb, and it means to turn. And so talk about turning to God, changing your mind about who Yeshua is. Uh, they don't distinguish and have any idea that there's a difference between you and the Pope in Rome any more than you understand the difference between a Reconstructionist Jew and a Hasidic Jew. Okay, so so they don't see those differences. So if you use the word Christian, they're thinking Roman Catholic, and the Roman Catholics have persecuted the Jews forever. So uh, those are terms to, to be aware of. Uh, using the word confession, use the word admit or acknowledge is much better. Confession of sin brings to mind the Roman Catholic confessional. Uh, the cross, we that has also these negative overtones. So talk about and crucifixion. So instead of using crucifixion, use the word sacrifice. That's a good biblical word in many passages. The sacrifice of, the, of, of Jesus. So you talk about the cross. Old Testament implies their Bibles not complete, so that 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 rubs them can rub them the wrong way. Talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh. Um, or the Torah, and uh, go to the Old Testament uh, for verses, give them the gospel from the Old Testament. And I was going to get into that in just a little bit, but we're going to get out of time. So we need to transition into the gospel by asking just sincere, thought-provoking questions. You don't just throw them all out at the same time, but just in the course of conversation. And one question is, well, I've got some questions about some of the practices in Judaism. Would you help me understand what, what, what is Passover all about? What is Yom Kippur all about? Uh, why are these feast days so important? What's their significance? Do you understand the origins of that? How did, how did this come to be? How, how did Passover start? A second question is, how does a Jewish person have a personal relationship with God? What's the basis for that? A third is, how does a Jewish person get atonement? I wouldn't use the word atonement. That's a made-up theological word. How does a Jewish people get cleansing for sin? That would hit hit it more directly. How does a Jewish person found, find peace with God? Um, five, some have said, Jewish man changed my life. Would you like to hear about it? But ask questions. Don't tell them ask questions get them engaged so next time what i want to do because this is probably going to take most of the hour but i want to finish this this is a tract i've written and i'm hoping that we can have it ready to be on the table out there at the chafer conference we're going to be able to do that we're getting close i think i've got a final ready to go i'll send it to you um are you right with god job asked the question can a man be be righteous with God? How can a man be righteous with God? The word there for righteous is tzedakah. You've heard me say this many times. This is really important. Now, this may not work with, with many, many Gentile unbelievers. I had a couple of people who I asked to read through and said, why are you talking about this? But tzedakah is a well-known word in Judaism. It it describes your good deeds, your good works, your charitable gifts, all of the good things that you do. So that is a well-known word to a Jewish person. And so when we pointed out at the very beginning here, I'm saying, how can a man uh, be righteous with God? And so is it possible for us to know how can a man be righteous with God? And the Bible tells us. The oldest scriptures in the Hebrew scriptures tell us how a man can be righteous with God. And if we go to those scriptures, they will uh, explain that very, very clearly. So that's where we'll start next time. And just I just want to work through what's what's in this tract. It's just one of many tools that you could use. I wouldn't hand it to somebody and say, read this you'll get saved I would say after you've had some conversation say you know maybe you might want to read through this a little bit and then we can talk about it see what questions you might have and so that's going to be the next thing we we print here I hope in the next 10 days but I'll, I'll email this to you right now I got I got back what I needed to from a couple of editors so I'm good OK, so next time we'll finish this up. But I think this is important and this can be used with anybody. Really, uh, they may not have an emphasis on Seneca, but trust me, they have an emphasis on their good deeds, that they're good enough to get to heaven, they're good enough to please God. And so we just work through, through that. Father, thank you for this opportunity to talk about these things and come to understand a little bit more about how we can be prepared to talk to unbelievers about the good news that Jesus Christ has given us forgiveness and he has died on the cross. He's paid the penalty for our sins and we can have everlasting life simply by trusting in him. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, find, see the open doors that you give us and that we might have the spiritual courage to walk through those doors and to just ask some questions. And it's not all, you know, Rome's not built in a day. People are not saved in one conversation or maybe even a hundred. But you are working through the whole process, and we need to trust in God, the Holy Spirit, to make things clear. So, Father, we just put this in your hands. Help us to be bold when we need to be bold and quiet when we need to be quiet. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.